This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Education Development Center. EDC works to empower all people to lead healthy, productive lives. As a leading nonprofit research and economic development firm, EDC advances lasting solutions to the world's most pressing educational, health, and economic challenges. Guided by empathy, evidence, and experience, EDC provides individuals, families, and communities with the knowledge, skills, and support they need to achieve a better future. EDC creating opportunity for all. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. Uh, And today we're here to talk about uh, something that has taken an immense toll on children and teenagers in the last two years. uh, And that is the pandemic and the toll on their mental health and well-being. And today I'm delighted to be joined by two guests to discuss this. Uh, My first guest is uh, Zainab Hijazi, the Senior Mental Health Technical Advisor at UNICEF. Uh, Zainab, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Paige. Thank you for having me. Uh, A quick note to our audience before we start, we would love to hear your questions. So please tweet us using the handle at Post Live, and I will try to incorporate those during our conversation. Uh, Zainab, let's start off with some statistics. Uh, I've heard that seven, uh, one in seven kids over under 19 years old experiences some kind of mental health disorder uh, around the world. Uh, do, do those figures sound correct to you? Yes, absolutely, Paige. You know, um, mental health and these statistics are really are an important indication of mental health being this global issue. Um, But of course, it remains stigmatized and underfunded in almost every country, rich or poor. Uh, And and poor mental health in childhood and adolescence prevents children from fulfilling their rights and reaching their true potential. Uh, But, you know, you mentioned the statistics and even before the pandemic, far too many children were burden under the weight of unaddressed mental health issues um, with the latest available data estimating uh, other statistics that are important to note, including that one in four children live with a parent who has a mental health condition and that really half of all mental health conditions start by age 14 and three quarters by age 25. But most cases, while treatable, go undetected and untreated. And this puts an emphasis on the importance of acting early and prioritizing child mental health. I know one question that always comes up in my mind when I think about this issue is, uh, you know, by many measures, the world is a better place than it's ever been before uh, on on almost every measure. Um, Is it the case that mental health for kids is worsening or is it more that we now have the resources to be aware of it, to track it and to try to counter it? What's your take on that? Uh, It's a really good question. I mean, of course, throughout the pandemic, uh, there were very frequent warnings that we may be facing a wave of mental health problems. Uh, I think we saw in many headlines the word tsunami. Uh, And numerous studies and surveys have appeared during the pandemic that seem to bear out these concerns. Uh, And of course, combined, they paint a picture um, that 
children and young people are reporting feelings of being anxious, of being depressed, of being overwhelmed, and, and of parents reporting changes in children's behavior, um, including difficulty concentrating, restlessness, and, 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 and irritability, irritability and more. Uh, but we need to be a little cautious here. You know, the pandemic has produced a flood, um, call it a tsunami, um, of research studies of variable quality. For those researching the field, the challenge is not finding evidence, but rather assessing how much of this evidence is, is really useful. And this sadly is not a new problem. You know, even before the pandemic, it was very clear that evidence and knowledge around children's mental health was sadly lacking. Data on mental health conditions, including an anxiety, depression, and self-harm are available for less than 7% of the world's children and adolescents. And most of these children and adolescents live in high-income countries. So in other words, when it comes to understanding the mental health of most children in most of the world's countries, we just don't know nearly enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, let's drill down into some of the specific causes of these mental health difficulties. And of course, you mentioned the pandemic when you're sort of looking at how I know a variety of countries handled the pandemic. Uh, what did you observe in terms of, you know, how, how, you know, what opportunities children were given to say, go to school, to have social interaction? Uh, and then what toll that did take on kids as those things changed and were rolled back? Yeah, you know, um, no generation has experienced a childhood um, quite like this one. Um, in cities, towns, and villages around the world, um, the lives of children and young people were repeatedly put on hold for over a year, and many are still impacted to the to this day. And so, what the COVID nineteen did was it you know triggered shocks on multiple fronts that intensified certain vulnerabilities for children, such as you know increased uh, exposure to violence, neglect and deprivation, uh, disrupted access to education, as you just said, and social isolation. So alone or in combination for many children, these likely led to negative educational outcomes and increased stress levels. Parents and caregivers, of course, were also affected and needed help as they provided the necessary environment um, and support for children's continued learning and to cope during the crisis. Um, so yes, less visible, but no less worrying for many is the impact of the pandemic on children, including their mental health. And this is not surprising, you know, given that children's mental health and well-being is affected by how well they are supported by their schools and their peers. And even even more broadly by the economic and political structures in our societies. Um, and yes, by events like disaster, war, community violence, and major health emergencies like the pandemic, which impacted all of these areas that are usually protective factors for children's mental health. I want to pull in an audience question here uh, from Gail in North Carolina, who asks, is the risk of isolation to prevent COVID worth the mental health consequences of depression? And how do you assess uh, the risk reward ratio? And I find this an interesting question because of course, uh, this has sort of sparked a furious debate in the US as people have looked at the school closures and sort of in retrospect, uh, you know, realized that maybe this had a greater toll than it needed to have on kids. What's your take on all that? Um, you know, this is a is a it's 
I guess it requires a twofold response. The first is, you know, from a public health perspective and, you know, the measures that were put into place um, were necessary to protect children um, at the physical level. Uh, but certainly, you know, UNICEF and partners, we worked very hard to ensure that children remained connected, that the peer-to-peer -peer interaction was um, supported through different channels. Um, you know, we talk a lot about um, social media media and platforms that um, are, you know, certainly pose a risk to young people, but that also provide new possibilities um, for increased youth and peer uh, and peer led opportunities for promoting mental health among young people um, and also uh, strengthening uh, interaction. So um, it's, it's hard to respond to the, the whether or not it was worth it because also, I think there are measures that have been put into place to also ensure that the peer-to-peer -peer, uh, and social uh, and interaction and connectedness was maintained um, through different channels within families and within uh, schools and within communities as well. Uh, let's talk about social media for a minute. And this is also just a fascinating debate because uh, as you say, it can facilitate connectedness. But of course, we've also heard a lot about how uh, different social media platforms are especially har harming girls in the way that they're being used. Do you see social media as a net positive or a net negative uh, when you think about teenagers in particular and how they're using these platforms? I mean, it's, it's no doubt that technology has transformed the way children and young people interact with each other and the, how they interact with the world um, with profound impact on behavior, day-to-day -day activities, and all with positive as well as negative implications on mental health. Um, you know, new possibilities for improving the availability, reach, and quality of mental health care and services are um, a reality because of social social media and, and, and these types of technological platforms. Um, but we've also noted, of course, that social media has led to um, increased frequencies of anger words or varied uh, negative emotions and related patterns of language use associated with social media users' likelihood of self-reported mental health problems. So, um, yeah, I mean, we cannot deny that the use of online platforms um, and popular social media present risks for users, especially young users, users and girls, um, including worsening of mental health symptoms through prolonged screen time use, exposure to hurtful content um, and hostile interactions with others, threats to privacy, um, as well as neg negative consequences of everyday life due to stigma, um, impact on personal relationships and unintended consequences of disclosing personal health or mental health information online. But really the big question is, if digital technologies such as social media and other online platforms are here to stay, what are the ways to ensure safe use of these technologies and how do we minimize the risks that impact mental health? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question because I could see people seeing it, viewing it as, you know, maybe maybe uh, technology helps to correct these problems, but maybe technology is leading to some of these problems in the first place. Um, I wanted to zoom back quickly to something you mentioned at the outset, and that is when you're sort of surveying countries for where we see the biggest problems with youth mental health. Is there a difference between, say, wealthier countries and poorer countries in terms of children that are reporting mental health problems? Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's of course you know when children are exposed to humanitarian crises, um, there of course you know we are going to be seeing increased levels of distress um, in you know low and middle income countries that are not necessarily impacted by humanitarian crises. Usually, the infrastructure that is available to support these children is just not there. So yes, we see a difference in a sense where. In in developed countries and high income countries, there is an infrastructure available to provide the care and services. Uh, but this is not a rule, you know, we're seeing in Europe and in Ukraine and the neighboring countries that sometimes uh, high income or developed countries um, who have not experienced emergencies before are less equipped to respond to the emerging mental health needs. Um, so we're active, for example, at the moment, right uh, in, in that emergency. And but Luckily enough, in those developed contexts, there are active partners and the government is, has the resources to roll out um, care and services um, for families and communities. Are there factors uh, kind of that cross cross country lines uh, that are sort of consistently true in terms of risk factors? Like, in other words, if you're trying to perhaps identify a child that might be at a higher risk for mental health difficulties, what might some of those factors be? You know, I think the to answer that question, I think it's it's important to understand that children's mental health and well-being is linked to their environment. So in other words, child development and well-being are embedded in a child's own context and experiences with risk and protective factors tied to relationships with caregivers, um, friends and family, uh, supports in schools and communities, sociocultural influences, as well as broader political and economic factors. So, you know, if you have a child who is, you know, um, being displaced because of a certain humanitarian crisis, but they are still with their family, their parents are supported and are able to provide nurturing um, care for the child and the child is able to resume some sense of normalcy in school, it's very likely that that child will continue to do well. In a developed context, in a poor setting where a child might be um, you know, experiencing neglect or abuse within the home and they don't have a nurturing uh, relationship within the home with, and they're not receiving the support that they need in school, that child is likely not to do well. So across lines, across settings, it is the child's world and circles of support that surround them that really are the key indicators for how well that child is doing and an indicator for um, their mental health status. It's hard to think of a region of the country where children may be struggling more than in Ukraine, which I know you already alluded to. Uh, we know they've been under attack for months, unfortunately. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you're doing in that region to support the needs of Ukraine's young people? 
yes. So, you know, in Ukraine, we, of course, there's, we have, we, we've, we've been, we've had, we had to respond to the immediate needs, you know, in any emergency, uh, we, you know, we go in, we are uh, immediately carry out a rapid needs assessment to better understand what are the experiences of children and families, what are the support systems that exist that we could leverage in our response, who are the partners that are active on the ground. You know, we're far beyond this medicalized um, solely health approach that requires uh, mental health services be delivered through the health sector. We've now, are, we are now able to advocate and implement an approach that supports mental health services through education, through health services and through social services and child protection. And in the Ukraine response specifically, we are, um, you know, establishing a network of uh, blue dot support hubs uh, in coordination with other partners and United Nations uh, agencies. Um, and essentially, these hubs are uh, located within neighboring countries where displaced families are received. Uh, they provide child and child and family-friendly spaces, uh, information and advice desks, legal aid, identification and referral of children at risk, and basic mental health and psychosocial support services. So anyone who is on the front line providing any type of service should receive basic training in mental health, uh, mental health care, as well as psychological first aid. Um, and of course, that's the immediate response. Now we're moving into a medium-term response and we're working very closely with the government and other partners to strengthen systems for care. Um, protection and education for children is critical. Um, and, and also, we're really investing in capacity building of social workers and education personnel who are um, working directly with children. So really meeting children where they are in an environment where there is likely going to be a lot of stigma uh, and discrimination around seeking services directly should those uh, families and children need, that, need it. Well, we're almost out of time, but for uh, the last minute or so, I'd love to hear from you uh, whether you've seen any success stories. Are there any countries that seem to be really ahead of the curve in terms of trying to provide these mental health supports? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, usually when we talk about emergencies, we talk about emergencies as an opportunity for making a change, for bringing awareness to mental health and really investing in uh, support and, and building care systems for young children and families. Um, and I touched a little bit on stigma uh, and discrimination, and maybe it, it's a good opportunity to maybe talk a little bit about um, an experience that we had in Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan, about a decade ago, was had one of the highest adolescent suicide mortality rates in the world. And suicide was the leading cause of death among adolescents ages 15 to 19. Um, and since 2012, UNICEF has collaborated with the government of Kazakhstan to develop and implement adolescent mental health and suicide prevention program. And this program um, is a school-based response that aims to strengthen um, the national education and 
health system's ability to respond to adolescents' mental health and psychosocial needs. Um, and it does this by improving early identification and referral of those at risk. Fast forward to 2018, we've scaled up the implementation to over 1,500 schools across five regions. And an evaluation very recently found that adolescents who are identified at risk experience a significant decrease in suicidal ideation, depression, and anxiety, and stress after receiving, after receiving treatment. And so this is a really successful example of where you know, we're able to um, mobilize resources Resources, understand the problems that are experienced at the country level and respond and scale up an effective and promising approach to um, address mental health issues, decrease risk and improve access to services um, and roll that out at the national level. And importantly, really focus in on the data piece. It is because of the data available in Kazakhstan that we were able to identify a problem and it is through data that we're able to understand better uh, that what we are doing works and we're seeing a decrease in in, in, in mental health issues um, as well as uh, building and contributing to the evidence that could be applied in other countries and other settings. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but Zaina Hijazi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Paige. Well, I'll be back in just a few minutes with my next guest, guest U.S. Surgeon General uh, Vivek Morthy. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. Young people around the world have been experiencing higher levels of anxiety, stress, and grief in recent years. It started before the pandemic. Uh, of course, the pandemic only made things worse by uh, limiting social interaction and reducing access to education. To help us understand how we can respond with meaningful solutions. I would like to welcome Heidi Carr. She is Principal Advisor for Mental Health, Trauma and Violence Initiatives at Education Development Center. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks, Kathleen. Pleasure to be here. Heidi, the global youth mental health crisis presents such an enormous set of challenges. What are the barriers, would you say, to addressing the crisis and where should we start? Well, Kathleen, I'd say we need to think holistically across a continuum of mental health needs. So we need to think about how do we interweave promotion of mental health, prevention of mental health issues, treatment of mental health disorders, of course, but also recovery um, from mental health issues, because we know most people do recover from mental health challenges. Um, and understand how we link those different pieces across the continuum and what the different entry points are. You know, a lot of conversations seem to focus lately on how do we increase the number of mental health clinicians and how do we scale up acute treatment in health systems. But the truth is we're never going to have enough clinicians uh, to meet our demand. And in many places, health systems are not accessible to the majority of people, especially outside of the U.S., so we need solutions that don't require mental health professionals if we're going to really achieve large level change. There are three pillars that guide a lot of our work in mental health at the Education Development Center. Um, one is that interventions are scalable. 
right? So that we're designing interventions that can be administered to large groups of youth at the same time. The second is that they're multi-pronged. So that we can bring mental health interventions into many different settings in our communities, homes, schools, workplaces. And finally, that they're horizontal, which means that we are addressing co-occurring issues, not kind of continually creating an intervention for one thing at a time. Um, it's just not uh, a way to address the staggering need that's out there. Um, EDC is actually working to create solutions that adhere to these three pillars. We are in the middle of designing a mental health curriculum that can be administered by non-clinicians, that can be administered in a variety of settings, and um, that addresses many of these co-occurring issues together. Heidi, what do you think will happen if we don't confront this challenge facing children around the world? What are the impl implications, would you say? Well, we already know the ways that poor mental health kind of affects um, the whole aspect of an individual's lives. We know that pretty well, but we often fail to recognize what mentally unhealthy groups of people or communities um, fail to get out of life um, if people are not mentally well. On the community level, we know that mental unwellness leads to increases in conflict, for example, both interpersonal, but also group-based. Um, the ability of individuals and groups to think flexibly, which is, you know, thinking about there are many different solutions to every problem is a core mental health skill. And that ability to think flexibly has a huge part to play in group violence, like violent extremism. Um, but also in domestic violence. We know that uh, mentally healthy people are also more able to contribute to their economies. They're more able to be creative, to take risks. Uh, they're more effective in their jobs, which means the economic health of a culture greatly depends on the mental health of its people. And so the mental health of a community or society, Kathleen, really underscores its ability to grow, to innovate, um, and as such, we really have to get better at understanding the repercussions of not investing in mental health. So fascinating. If you could leave our audience with uh, one call to action, what would it be? And, and what would you say are the most urgent next steps that, that should have been taken yesterday to help young people struggling with mental health issues? Great question. I would say we need community-led, culturally humble, and innovative solutions to meet this need. Um, of course, they need to be based on our evidence that we know uh, in terms of what works, um, but they need to be adapted. Um, no matter what area of work you might be involved with or lead, we need to be incorporating a mental health lens into that sector. Um, every sector working with youth or working with people who care for youth, because we know that, you know, the environments youth grow up in, learn and live in, have so much to do with their own mental health. So whether we are talking about a workplace, uh, employers can strengthen the mental health of their workforces in comprehensive ways, more than just sending individual people to clinicians. Health systems can focus on culture change and policy adaptation to support their beneficiaries, but also their staff. We know that if staff are healthy in health systems, they deliver better care. 
And finally, in our education systems, we need to focus, of course, on social emotional learning instruction, but we need to go deeper and we need to teach mental health skills to youth in systematic, innovative ways. So in other words, I think I'm calling for a clear understanding that every sector has a role to play and it's beyond time for all hands on deck. Heidi Carr, Principal Advisor for Mental Health Trauma and Violence Initiatives at Education Development Center. Thank you so much. My pleasure. All right, and now I'll hand it back over to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello and welcome back for those uh, just joining. I am Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at the Washington Post. And I'm pleased to welcome my next guest who's someone I've spoken to a number of times on here before, and that is U.S. Surgeon General uh, Vivek Morthy, here to talk us through the mental health of young Americans. Dr. Morthy, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much, Paige. It's good to be with you again. So uh, before we get started, a quick note again to our audience. We'd love to hear your questions. Tweet us using the handle at post live and we'll incorporate those. Uh, Dr. Morthy, of course, lots to talk about in terms of youth mental health, but I want to quickly um, throw a couple of questions at you about monkeypox because I know that that is top of mind for a lot of people in this moment and certainly dominating headlines. Uh, and at the moment, the U.S. has the most known cases in the world. It's spreading particularly rapidly uh, in New York City. And of course, the administration has sort of been under fire for its response. I'd love to hear from you. What should the government be doing more of to try to get this outbreak under control? Well, Paige, you know, I'm glad you asked. I know that people have been hearing about monkeypox and they may be worried about it. So here's some of the key things that people need to know. And, and here's some of what the government is doing uh, and plans to do more of. You know, monkeypox is an illness that we are very concerned about and are mobilizing our resources to try to address. This is a virus that has symptoms that include swollen lymph nodes, symptoms that can mimic a, a flu or a cold, uh, but also it has a characteristic painful rash uh, that many people who have had monkeypox have experienced. And what's important to know is that it's spread primarily through skin-to-skin -skin contact. Uh, that can occur uh, during sexual activity, as has been discussed a lot in the press. Um, it can also happen, you know, through other forms of close physical contact. So it's important to know about. Uh, as important as monkeypox is, this is not spreading with the level of contagiousness that we saw with COVID, which is a different route of spread and a different illness altogether. The key, though, with monkeypox is to also recognize that treatments, vaccines, and tests, these are three critical aspects of the response. And what the administration has been doing has been mobilizing uh, the, the vaccine uh, portion of the response, getting more than a million uh, doses of vaccine committed uh, and working on more on the way. And the testing is now available in commercial labs as well as state public health labs. And we also have treatments that have been sent out to jurisdictions across the country. Um, but this is, as much as has been done, there's more that has to be done in all of these areas. And that's why you're seeing across the administration from the CDC, the FDA, to other parts of Health and Human Services. Uh, there's a lot of work ongoing to speak to communities, especially those uh, where the virus is spreading the fastest, which are among the community of men who have sex with men. It's why many of our messages, vaccines, and other testing have been targeted uh, to that community. So we'll continue to work on this, and people should be aware of what this is and how it spreads so you also know how to keep yourself safe. 
Uh, I know my colleagues have been working on a story about what the CDC recommendations will look like. And as you note, uh, that this is chiefly spreading among uh, gay men. And I know the agency has been, has been hesitant to recommend limiting sexual partners among this population uh, for different reasons. In your opinion, would that be a helpful recommendation at this moment in time? Well, I think people should be aware of aware of all the different pathways through which they can reduce risk. You know, and if you are uh, somebody who has, let's say, a number of many sexual partners and may have many new sexual partners, um, you should know that that does increase your level of risk. And certainly, uh, you know, thinking about how to reduce your exposure during a time like this, uh, when the virus is spreading. And we're still working to make vaccines more accessible. That that's an important consideration uh, that we want people to be aware of. It's also important that people know again the other aspects of how this is spread through skin-to-skin -skin contacts. When people know that the vaccines uh, are available now in many parts of the country, hundreds of thousands of doses have been shipped out, with many more on the way. And it's also important that people know testing is available too. So we want to make sure people have all the tools necessary so that they can protect themselves against this virus. And on that question of, of vaccines, uh, of course, I know there's a limited supply and the administration has talked about splitting doses to try to get that supply to go further. But in response, the manufacturer has threatened to cancel all future vaccine orders from the U.S. if that happens. So seems to be quite a conflict here. But what's your own take on that? Is it a good idea to try splitting vaccine doses? Well, this is a recommendation that was not made lightly uh, by the, the FDA. Uh, and by the you know HHS more broadly, uh, they carefully looked at this. They they have some data from a prior study that indicates this strategy would in fact be effective, and it was on that basis that they made their recommendation to split the doses. And specifically, so people know what we're talking about is the notion of taking a single dose, splitting it into five, and administering it through a slightly different way, something called intradermally, which is into the layers uh, of the skin. Uh, and this is, is a strategy they believe will not only allow for more vaccine doses to be available, but would also still have a robust response in terms of protecting people from monkeypox. So I think it is a reasonable strategy uh, to pursue, especially under the circumstances now. It doesn't mean that the FDA is not going to continue studying uh, this and looking at the data to make sure that people continue to have the protection they need from the vaccine. Uh, but this is a very reasonable strategy to take at this point uh, in the monkeypox outbreak. Okay, well, let's get on to talking about youth mental health because so much to address there. Uh, and I know that you have given the assessment that what we're currently in is is something of a, a youth mental health pandemic, even as we come out of the COVID pandemic. Um, can you unpack for us some of the challenges you're seeing at the moment uh, when you look at uh, what young Americans are facing in terms of their mental health? Yeah, I'm deeply worried, Paige, about the mental health of young people in America right now. We are in the midst of a crisis, and we have been for many years, even though it hasn't always made the headlines or been top of mind for people. But what COVID did is it really pulled back the curtain on just how severe the mental health uh, yeah, epidemic is in the United States, particularly among youth. And there are three numbers, Paige, that always stick in my head. One is the number 11. That's the number of years it takes on average for a child to receive treatment after developing symptoms. The second number is 57. That's a percentage increase in the suicide rate that we had among kids in the decade prior to the pandemic. And this got worse for a number of kids during the pandemic. And the other number that I remember is 42%. Uh, that's a percentage of high school students, uh, sorry, 44%. That's a percentage of high school students who say they are they feel persistently sad or hopeless 
And think about it. We think of high school as a time where your life is opening up for you. Uh, but nearly half of high school kids are feeling despondent about themselves and about the future. So these, to me, uh, stick in my head because they give me a snapshot of where we are. And it's echoed by the conversations I have with young people all across the country who routinely tell me uh, that they are struggling with anxiety or depression, uh, many of whom also tell me that their experience of social media often leaves them feeling worse about themselves and about their friendships. And finally, I think it's important not to lose sight of the experience of parents here as well. And I say this as a dad myself. I have two small kids who are four and five. And my interest in this topic of youth mental health is, is you know, partly motivated by them. I think about their future. I want to make sure that they are well. Um, but when you, I talk to parents across the country, they are struggling right now. They're dealing with their own, their own anxieties and worries, whether it's about COVID, economic worries, et cetera. But they're also worried about their kids. And I'll tell you that one of the worst feelings that you can have as a parent is to see your kids struggling and to not be able to get them the help that they need. And that is a situation that many parents are in. With all of that said, though, Paige, the good news is we can do something about this. It does not have to be this way. And we, in fact, know much of what we have to do. We know we've got to expand access to treatment, and we know how to do that. We know that we've got to increase the workforce of people who can provide and deliver mental health care. And we know we have got to invest in prevention and prevention programs, especially that are school-based that we know work. And finally, we've got to shift our culture uh, around mental health as well to one that uh, is not so imposing of this terrible stigma uh, on mental health. It doesn't make people feel ashamed uh, to ask for help. These are things we can do, we've already started to do. We've got to accelerate because there are millions of children who are struggling right now and they can't wait any longer. Uh, it strikes me that when we talk about youth mental health, you know, there's perhaps two aspects to this. And as you know, very troubling statistics in terms of suicides going up, uh, serious mental illnesses sort of thing. But then there's another another aspect to it that I'd like to ask you about. And that is, um, you know, we've removed stigma of talking about mental health and mental illnesses. But one thing that I often hear among my, my friends who are parents, and I'm a parent myself, although my kids are not on social media yet, thankfully, um, but that in in some in some cases, it's almost become trendy for young people to say that they have a mental health condition, to uh, you know say they have multiple personality disorder or something else. And of course, we know that teenagers are highly susceptible to to suggestion and social contagion. So, without diminishing, of course, the seriousness of real cases of mental illness, I wonder if there is another component to this of of perhaps social media contagion. Is that anything that you've thought about or, or heard discussed? Sure. No, I, it's certainly something I have thought about and, and I've heard uh, others ask about this and wonder, you know, is there is there a contagion here around people uh, sort of wanting, in fact, to uh, to admit that they or that they have a mental health problem. But while I do hear uh, those concerns, my sense is that that is not where the vast majority uh, of people are. I still find that there are young people all across our country who are ashamed to admit that they are struggling. And even if they do admit they're struggling, they feel a sense of shame around actually asking for help and getting continued help. There are so many children I encounter who are bullied, but don't feel comfortable admitting that because they feel that that says something about them, that they're weak, that they're not worthy, that they can't defend themselves. And so there is still a heavy burden uh, of stigma and shame uh, that people carry around the country. I think to guard against what you're raising, we have to make sure we're talking about mental health in the right way. Uh, we know that everyone struggles at some point in their life, whether they're public about it or not, whether it's short-lived or long-lived, everyone struggles at some point. We have to be open and honest about that. But we also have to be clear that we don't want people to struggle. Uh, it's not a state that we desire for anyone. 
But what we do want to do is to meet those moments of struggle uh, with compassion, with help, and with support. That's how we'll ultimately help this crisis get better. You've said that the challenges that today's young people face are unprecedented and uniquely hard to navigate. Navigate. What are some of those things? They are. You know, I think paid so often about like my own experience growing up, and and you know, this topic is personal to me because I also struggled with my mental health as a young person. I struggled with loneliness. I, you know, as a kid and at later times as an adult, I, uh, you know, I struggled and wondered if I, you know, was experiencing depression at various points during my my childhood, didn't always know how to talk about it, rarely t told anyone, including my parents about it, even though they loved me unconditionally and were very supportive. Uh, so it is, it's certainly a very personal uh, sort of matter uh, it's to me as well. But, but when I think about the, the broader crisis page, I, I think that there are a couple of things that, that we have to keep in mind. One is that young people today are growing up in an environment uh, where they are digital natives. They're surrounded by social media. Uh, years ago, if I did something, uh, you know, embarrassing in class, 25, 30 people knew about it. Now, you know, a child is something that may uh, be embarrassing and hundreds or thousands of people may learn about it online. Uh, bullying, which was, is not new, it's been happening for generations, can now take place offline and online. But you also look at the um, the experience that uh, that social media creates for one's own self-esteem. And that's also deeply concerning to me. Uh, and what it, social media does for many young people is it accelerates the culture of comparison uh, that already exists in society. People have been comparing themselves to each other for you know hundreds, if not thousands of years. But social media makes that a moment to moment experience that happens numerous times throughout the day. And all of this leads to an experience of technology that can be really hurtful to people in terms of their relationship and their sense of self at a time where kids are still developing in terms of their identity. But finally, Paige, let's keep this in mind as well. It's not only technology that's profoundly different for kids. The young people growing up today uh, are surrounded uh, by crises that they really look at as existential, profound crises that affect how they think about whether the future is truly bright or not. That's a crisis of climate change, uh, of racism, of violence. And yes, you know these challenges have existed for years, but they're hearing about them. They're seeing about them 24-7 now uh, on the news, on social media, and through other venues. And so when I meet young people today, I often ask them, do you think the future is brighter uh, than the past? Many of them wonder. They're not quite sure because of these crises. These are all challenges in this, the media environment in particular, especially the social media environment. These are features of growing up today they're quite different from the experience that I and prior generations had. It's why I think we have to be mindful of how unique the challenges are that the current generation is facing and recognize that the numbers are not lying to us. These suicide rates that we're dealing with, the rates of hopelessness, uh, the rates of loneliness, which are sky high among young adults uh, and adolescents, we have to take this seriously because our kids are suffering and they're telling us that and through their stories and through the numbers. I want to pull in an audience question here, uh, which I think fits well uh, with what we're talking about. And this question is from Lisa in Maryland. And Lisa asks, uh, I have followed the Surgeon General's profound work on the loneliest loneliness epidemic in America. I worry greatly that our children who are exposed to virtual learning and play around every corner will and are suffering from, quote, alone together syndrome. Please discuss the relationship between screen time and mental health as you see it. Um, so uh, Dr. Morthy, would you elaborate a little bit more on that? I know there are some positive things about technology, uh, but also a lot, a lot of negatives. So can you tell us more about that? Well, Elisa, I, I love this question because um, this is a question that I grapple with as a parent too. 
right? And I think parents all across America are trying to figure out, which is how much screen time is okay for my kids? What kind of screen time is enough? And if I'm totally exhausted and I give my kid, you know, the, 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 you know, a device for a short period of time so I can just have a moment to relax, does that make me a bad parent? The answer to that last question, by the way, is no. It does not make you a bad parent. It's something I found myself having to do from time to time. But this is a universal struggle for all of us. Uh, as parents. But there are a few things I think we can use as guidelines. Number one is just to recognize that screen time, and so I'll say more broadly, the use of technology, whether it's to usually utilize social media, to watch videos online, to engage in other forms, you know, of entertainment or learning. Technology is not, you know, bad in and of itself. It's a tool that we can be, we can use to help or, or to hurt uh, ourselves. And there are some cases where kids can find, you know, ways to use tech that are helpful. Some kids have used technology to learn, to connect with other friends, to find communities uh, at moments where they have felt like they didn't belong or there's no one else who shared their interests or their identity. Um, and that is very, very powerful. But as parents, what we have to be aware of are a couple of things. One is how much time are our kids actually spending on social media? And what is their actual experience of social media and technology more broadly? Are they getting bullied? Online? Is their experience leaving them to feel worse about themselves and their friendships? Um, we can only understand this if we actually start a conversation uh, with our kids on their use of technology, screen time, and social media in particular. The second thing, though, is to look at what the impact of their screen time may have on the rest of their life. Is it crowding out their time with family and friends? Is it reducing the amount of time that they actually spend going out and playing? Is it compromising their ability to do their work for school? Any, if the answer is yes in any of those categories, that may tell us that we need to change something about how much our kids are using technology. And finally, keep this in mind, all of us, both our kids and ourselves, we need sacred spaces in our life that are free of technology. You might decide that that's the dinner table and that you're gonna have meals as places where there's no tech, no phones, it's just all of you talking. That might be other times right before your child goes to bed or when they first get up in the morning that are free from technology, but we all need these. And the, this last piece I'll mention is probably the toughest one uh, for many of us as parents, myself included, which is that we also have to be good role models here. And the truth is that we all struggle with our own use of technology, right? I've, I've had conversations with friends where I've been catching up with them and somehow I find that my hand is reaching into my pocket and taking out my phone and I'm refreshing my inbox or checking the scores on ESPN.com or doing something else that I don't really need to be doing online. And then I'll realize, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I don't need to be doing this. Uh, we do this unconsciously. It doesn't make us bad people. These devices are often designed in ways to pull us in. But I think when kids in, in particular, we have to be conscious about modeling the right behavior for them. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it means that if we're going to draw boundaries around ask our kids to draw boundaries around where they use technology, then we've got to do the same. If we're going to prioritize uh, our time with people and make sure we're fully present and not distracted by our phones, we want our kids to do that, we've got to do that as well. So all this to say that this is a challenge, uh, how to manage technology with your kids, and I'm certainly right there with you as a parent. Uh, but these are a few tips that may help you uh, along that journey. Well, on that note, let's imagine for one moment that you wake up tomorrow, someone hands you a magic wand, and you are able to eliminate social media for all kids under, say, age 18. Would you do it? Well, that's a really good question. I certainly think that kids start using social media at way too young uh, an age right now. Even though the, the, tech, the, the legal limit is 13 uh, on many of these platforms, 
I routinely uh, have parents who talk to me about their kids who are 10, 11, uh, and 12 who are utilizing multiple platforms and have often multiple accounts on individual platforms. So uh, I certainly think the age needs to be higher. Um, if it was left up to me, I, I think that I certainly wouldn't want kids using social media in middle school. And I'd also uh, be quite concerned about them using it uh, in high school, certainly not early in high school. Um, so I do think the age uh, at which kids use this should be higher. But here's the other thing I'd say for parents. If you're interested in your kid waiting uh, to uh, be older until they use social media, I recognize that's not always easy because if they're the only one who's not on social media and all of their friends are, that can be really difficult, right? It can make them feel like they're left out. They're not part of the conversations that everyone else is part of, which is why these kind of movements that I'm starting to see among parent groups to make a pact with one another, uh, that among a group of parents, that they're they're going to make sure that none of their kids actually use social media until an older age. Maybe that's 15, maybe it's 16, maybe it's 17. These packs are actually much more effective than an individual parent trying to make the decision, because then at least your child looks around and they have peers who are similarly not using social media at that age. So bottom line is, I certainly would be in favor of our kids waiting longer until they use social media. I think it starts way too early right now, and that should change. I like that advice. Us parents need to to band together. Um, uh, let's talk about schools for a moment because students are preparing to return uh, to, to school and to college campuses. Um, for some college students, this is their third year of college life with uh, pandemic-related restrictions, although certainly less than in the last two years. Uh, what's your advice to these young people as they start the new school year? Yeah, well, let me just say, young people today, whether you're in college or whether you're in grade school, they've just been through so much uh, during this pandemic. Their life has been turned upside down. They haven't been able to, to interact and, and spend in-person time with their classmates nearly as much as pre-pandemic. And in their learning as well, uh, both their academic learning as well as their social learning has been just profoundly interrupted. And I think we will be seeing the impacts of this for some time, which is why it's so important, again, for us to focus on our kids to think about how to make their educational experience more robust, to get them back to school safely, but also to recognize the mental health impact of the, the pandemic for the last few years. Um, for young people who are you know, going back to college, uh, here are a few things that I would say. Number one is just to recognize that the last few years has taken a toll on all of us. And if you feel like you're struggling, like you're having some anxiety around re-engaging with other people socially, or you're worried about being behind academically, just please know that you're not alone. There's nothing to be ashamed about, uh, about struggling in a moment, especially like this. The second thing to remember is that it's really important to ask for help when you need it. Help is there for a reason. Uh, it's there because it can help you over a difficult moment, over a hump. And all of us have those difficult moments. Uh, you know, when I first got to college, I struggled mightily, let me tell you. Um, I just did not want to be there. I didn't know how to re-engage and build a community. I really, really struggled. And the one regret I have is I never asked for help. Uh, so that's something I want, don't want people to feel any compunction or shame over. And there is help available. Many universities have counselors that are set up to provide care, especially for moments like this. We also, though, I want everyone to know we have now the 988 number available. This is everyone's familiar with 911. 988 is a number you can dial, simple, easy to remember, for mental health emergencies. And you'll find a trained counselor who's there and willing to help you and to support you. And finally, one last thing that's important, I think, for young people to know as you return to college, which is don't forget how incredibly powerful your relationships are to help buffer the stresses and mental health struggles that you may experience in the months ahead. One of the things that I learned over the years 
uh, as a doctor, as a surgeon general in the past, but also just as a human being, as somebody who struggled with loneliness myself, was that our relationships are healing. They're natural buffers to stress. And so it's in moments like this when we're feeling stress, when we're going through transitions, it's especially important to reach out to the people that we love, the people who care for us. That might be our friends on campus. It might also be our parents and our friends from back home. Uh, I know things get busy when you go back to school, but stay in touch with the people you love. That could just be five minutes a day, you know, calling home or calling a friend and saying, hey, I'm just thinking about you. I want to see how you are. Uh, but those connections, those are like lifelines and they help sustain us during the difficult moments we have in our journeys. Well, we're running short on time, but I do want to fit in a quick question on the 988 number that you referenced. And we know this mental new mental health crisis hotline was launched earlier this summer, but we've heard reports that these call centers uh, may be understaffed. Is that something that you're watching? Are you concerned about that, especially the people who in serious distress are perhaps calling and maybe there's nobody to pick up the phone? Well, Paige, I'm glad you asked because, you know, we certainly are following very closely what's happening with the 988 uh, service. The good news is it's being utilized more. The number of calls has increased. You can text uh, as well uh, into 988 and people are utilizing that function. Uh, and we are seeing that, yes, in some parts of the country, there are longer wait times that we want. And we are certainly working on this as well. In fact, uh, the administration has pumped in uh, millions of dollars, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, in fact, into strengthening the 988 system because it has been underfunded for years. And this is a place also where uh, localities, states and local communities also uh, have an important responsibility here to help build up that local system. So there is more capacity. So we reduce wait times. And while, yes, it took uh, about five decades for the 911 system to really build up and get uh, to the capacity it has today, we can't wait that long, you know, for 988. And that's why we're pulling out the stops, getting more funding in there and working with states and localities to make sure we increase capacity. But just, you know, I want to say, though, just more broadly, as we think about mental health, if, if I could leave you with one sort of key message, is this is that this is a make or break moment for youth mental health in our country. We cannot afford to continue down the path that we're on right now. Uh, too many of our kids are suffering. Too many of our children are losing their lives. Too many parents are suffering as well as they watch their kids uh, go through these incredibly difficult struggles. But the good news is we know how to turn this around. And now is the time for us to summon the will and the determination to do so. I want to be able to look back in a few years as I think about my own children and the many children I've met across the country and know that we seize this moment to make the investments that we needed to make, to have the conversations in our communities that we needed to have to step up and talk to our children and open up a conversation on mental health, recognizing that conversation we have with them as a parent, the conversation that might tell them it's okay to talk about these struggles. That could be a conversation that makes a huge difference in their life and that might ultimately save their life. But as much as the policy changes are important to expand access to treatment and invest in prevention, we won't solve this problem if we also don't build a culture in America that supports youth mental health. And that has to be a culture uh, that's centered around compassion, around kindness, and around belonging. Uh, there are too many children who are walking around today who feel that they don't belong, who feel that they don't matter, who feel nobody cares about them in the world. And even though whether, even if you don't have a policy lever, even if you're not a legislator, even if you're not a doctor or a mental health expert, you can make a difference in someone's life by reaching out to them, by checking on them, by letting them know that you care. And so that is a step all of us can take today. And I would encourage you to do so because together, I do believe we can solve 
this youth mental health crisis. And I will certainly use every day that I have as Surgeon General and beyond that to make sure that we are advancing this cause around youth mental health and getting our kids the help that they need. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us uh, today, uh, Vivek Morthy. Been a wonderful conversation as always with you. Thanks so much, Paige. It's always good to talk to you as well. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.